work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodotus, his wife, the wife of his brother, Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodotus had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodotus, I'm I'm saying that one wrong, I'm sorry, Herodotus herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to you, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in, in haste, before the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, obviously, any time that you start in on a passage, you've got to look at the context. So what's the context? What has just been happening? Does anybody remember? Nobody? Okay, so there's a, there's a dinner celebration happening right here, but I'm I'm saying prior to this, what did we what did we just look at? Okay, Jesus had just sent out his disciples, and what had happened with Jesus right prior to that as well? He had been in Nazareth, and he'd been rejected, and and he wasn't doing the miracles that he normally was doing. And yet as he traveled around, even though he wasn't doing the miracles that he normally did there in Nazareth, he still was healing some and he still went out. And then he sends his disciples out. And as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've seen over and over and over again, Jesus is constantly teaching and doing miracles. He's creating a big stir. And that stir has gotten so big that now King Herod, the, the ruler of that region has heard about him. And so when, it, when you get into this passage, there's going to be a lot of hems and hers, and you've got to keep track of, okay, which person are we talking about? So I acknowledge that that can be a little bit challenging on this. Um, it starts off, and King Herod heard of it. Really, that's heard of everything that Jesus was doing. That's, that's what's being referenced by that idea of heard of it. Heard all about Jesus, all about his activities. Why? Because his name had become well-known, manifest. It was, it was far and wide. Everyone had heard about Jesus. Everyone had heard what Jesus was doing. But that then brings up a big question. That's the major question, really, that Mark has been dealing with the whole time. 
is Jesus? That, that's the question that comes up. Even today, when, when people hear about Christians and Christianity and, and Jesus, the question comes down to, who is Jesus? If you were asked that, what would you say? What response would you give to who is Jesus? The Christ, right? The Son of God. God himself. I heard another one over here. The Messiah. Okay. My Savior. That's a good one. That's a really good, really good answer. Well, in this passage, they really had three options that they were pointing to. Now, a, a few weeks ago, I gave the example of, um, you know, there's, there's this question of what are the options? He could be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Do you remember that? Those are, those are three ideas about who Jesus could be. That, that, you know, he said certain things and they just weren't true. That's a liar. That he thought it was true, but he was wrong. That'd be a lunatic. Or, ultimately, that he is who he said he was. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, my Savior. Well, in this section, we see they kind of were faced with three options as well. They recognized that he was, he was a prophet, but what kind of prophet? So, it says that the people were saying, he's John the Baptist. Now, obviously, that brings up a character that we've seen already just briefly. And Mark doesn't dig into John the Baptist very much, other than that he was the forerunner of Christ. That he, he was the one who prepared the way and was making known. What else do we know about John the Baptist? Does anybody remember? A cousin of Jesus. Okay, he is a cousin of Jesus. Okay, he is the one who baptized Jesus. That's part of why we refer to him as John the Baptist, or the baptizer, I suppose is more accurate. But Okay, he, he did something that was different and unique in their society. He encouraged a baptism of repentance. So not just, in the, in the Old Testament, there were various washings that occurred, and those were all outward type things. And, and you recall the Pharisees were very focused on the outward appearance. And yet John, he was preaching and proclaiming this idea of repentance, of an inward change as being more important than that outward dunking in water. Okay? Anything else that you remember about John the Baptist? Okay. He lived out in the, the wilderness. He was dressed in camel hair. He had a weird diet. I mean, he's, he's an interesting character. Okay? Two months older than Jesus, when Mary came to John's mother, I can't remember the name. Uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, yeah. The baby left in her womb. So. Mm-hmm. Six. Six months, um, approximately. So, yeah, we know a little bit about John the Baptist. And yet, Mark doesn't record very much for us, except for this episode. And this is, this is a very significant event that occurs. John the Baptist had been going out and proclaiming this idea of repentance. And, and John was a forerunner of Christ that had been prophesied, that was expected. And he was making the paths ready for Jesus to be there. He was preparing the, the nation of Israel in that area for the coming of the Messiah. He had done his job. And now he's about to be executed. He's about to be executed because of 
continuing to do that job of proclaiming repentance, of letting people know, hey, you need to get right with God. He's going to be executed for that here in a little bit. But So that's the first person that they think that Jesus is. The stories, the accounts, the information about Jesus, it's, it's creating a huge stir, and everybody's hearing about it, even to the point that the king is hearing about it. Now, we're going to dig into Herod here in just a moment, but even the king has heard about it, and people are talking about this. But they're trying to figure out, who is Jesus? Well, he must be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Now, that would be pretty amazing, right? If somebody who had been beheaded is then back in action doing things. That must be miraculous, and that's their explanation. That's why he's able to do these miraculous powers at work in him, because he must be raised from the dead, and that's just miraculous, and he's doing miraculous things. We don't actually have record of John the Baptist ever doing miracles, per se, and yet they're thinking, oh, he, Jesus is John the Baptist doing these things, and, and he's risen from the dead. That's one idea. That's one suggestion. What's the second suggestion that's made about who Jesus is? Elijah. Okay, who's Elijah? Okay, he's a prophet from the Old Testament who didn't die. In fact, there was prophecy about Elijah that he would come again before the end times. And some of that prophecy, I'm not going to dig in too much to that prophecy. There's a lot going on there. Um, but in the Old Testament, this individual is prophesied yet to come, that he would return. And so, as the Jews were looking for the Messiah, they were also looking for the coming of Elijah. Now, there are um, a lot of things said about John the Baptist and connections made with Elijah. If you're interested in that, I would encourage Matthew 17, 10 through 13, and Matthew 11, verses 7 through 14. They talk about that and, and can dig into some of that as well. I'm not going to dig into that prophecy as much as to say that the people, they were expecting Elijah, they were looking for him before the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, and so they're saying, well, this must be Elijah. Come back, because he never died, and he's, he's doing these miracles just like the Old Testament prophet did. And so they're trying to say that Jesus must be Elijah. What's the third option that's, that's listed out of who this could be? Some other prophet. He is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Okay, that's the most kind of ambiguous. They didn't really know. They're like, well... I, I don't know who he is, but he's, he's like those Old Testament prophets. And so it, it must be one of those. What do you notice about this list of options that they have here? Okay, they're all human. They're all prophets. They're all wrong. Hmm. Yes, yeah, we're, we still look forward to the, that when, when Elijah, the prophecies concerning him are fulfilled. But what, what in this do you notice, or more specifically, what do you not notice listed in that? That he's the Messiah. None of them are, they're supposed to all be looking for Jesus as the Messiah. They're looking for that coming of the, the promised one. And yet, that's not one of the options. That's not one of the things that people were recognizing. Up to this point, we have seen over and over and over again what Jesus is doing, and yet people are missing the fact that he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. 
He is the one that was to come. Now here in a couple of chapters, that's going to change. We're actually going to, going to have a few things come up uh, in chapter 8 that are pretty exciting about that. But right now, this is the story that's being told. This is what people are convinced. That he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. That he's Elijah, come to fulfill the Old Testament prophets. Or that he's just a prophet like the prophets of old. You know, today there's still a lot of confusion about who is Jesus. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through our doctrinal statement, and we've been talking about who is Jesus? What, how does he fulfill the Old Testament prophecies? How does he uh, live as God and man? How does all of this work? It's a, it's a huge thing. There's a lot to dig into in that. But that question really is the ultimate question. It's the ultimate question, not just in this passage or in this book, but really of all the ages. Who is Jesus? That's what Mark is trying to emphasize here. Now we get to verse 16, and we find out which of those three Herod decides that it is. Herod, but when Herod heard of it, these are the, the stories and the accounts and the things about Jesus. When he heard those, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Okay, a couple of things in that statement that, are, that stand out and are kind of interesting. Uh, one, he, he goes with the first of the three options. Um, he also doesn't recognize, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. He just jumps on one of these and says, well, it must be John the Baptist. Next thing that I notice in that, whom I beheaded. He, he either takes credit or takes the blame. I'm not, I'm not positive how you want to phrase that, but he acknowledges he's the one, he's the cause of the death of John the Baptist. He's guilty. He has risen. He's, he's been brought back from the dead. That's his, his expectation. That this, this person that he's hearing about is John the Baptist, whom he had executed, is brought back from the dead. Now at this point, we kind of go into a flashback or a, a backstory of what's been going on. And all of this, I, I don't want us to miss why is all of this in here. Because as I, as I read through and I'm, I'm coming across this, I'm like, why does this fit right here? We just got done talking about Jesus. He was in Nazareth and he, he wasn't doing the same miracles because they weren't believing in him. And then we're going to get to the report of the disciples that he sent out. They went out all over and they come back and they're excited about everything that's been going on. And yet we have this tucked right in the middle. Why, why is this account right here? Well, I think it's, it's there to accomplish a couple of things. Um, one, like I said, it points to some Old Testament prophecies and fulfillments and things of that nature, but it also um, helps us understand a little bit about the cost of discipleship. This is John the Baptist who, who lived for God, who was doing exactly what God wanted him to, and it's not going to work out real well for him. It also foreshadows what's going to be happening with Jesus not very long after this. Now, the time frame um, of all of the events of Mark is not always real clear. In fact, we were talking about that during men's discipleship last week, that Mark doesn't always um, go you know, right in, in order and give us the, the full timeline of what's happening. Um, but in, in this case, we see that very shortly, very soon, the same types of things are going to be happening to Jesus as well. Let's dig into what happens to John, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and identify how those relate to what's going to be happening with Jesus as well. 
In verse 17, it says, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Okay? So that, that sets the stage, that gets us started. Herod is the one who did all of this. Now, at this point, I want to pause just for a moment and look at who is Herod. Who, who knows anything about this particular Herod? Or Herod's in general? Go ahead. Yes. And that, that, is, that is an important distinction. I don't, know, I don't know about others, but sometimes when you're reading through, you're going to hear a name, and you have to pause and figure out, okay, which one is this? John is a great example. There's John the Baptist, there's John the Apostle, and there's John the brother. And wait a minute, what's, what's going on? Which one are we talking about? Well, with Herod, um, you'll recall Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus. Um, he was, Herod the Great is a historical figure who was ruling over that whole region, that whole area. He was a, a wicked man that, when Jesus was born, was the one who was in charge. And he is the one who had all of the babies, uh, two years and under, executed. That Herod the Great is the Herod of the Christmas story. Okay? He had really ten wives, of which he murdered several, and a huge number of children, of which he murdered many. But four of them became the rulers of his area or of his empire. They were referred to as the Tetrarchs merely means that there were four of them who ruled the region. Some of them were eyeing for the whole kingdom. They wanted to be called the king. This Herod that we're going to be looking at in this passage is one of those four who wanted to be king over everything, but Rome didn't allow that. And so there's a lot of political intrigue going on in the background of this that you need to be aware of, and it helps make this story make more sense. This, these events fit into that political climate of what was going on. The, the kingdom, the area of all of Judea, from Galilee through Samaria, down into Jerusalem, all of that region had been under Herod the Great. But it was divided up because he had those four sons. Um, and like I said, Herod the Great was a, a wicked man. He did some nice things. I'm not going to not going to discount that. The new temple was re remodeled and brought back up and made really nice. He did all kinds of construction, but he was wicked and evil. And his children followed in his footsteps. That's really what sets up this um, event. Um, yeah. Yes. Yep. I'm going to get to that too here in just a moment. No, no, that's a, that's a good point. Herod the Great was a Jew. His sons were also Jews, but they were Jews in name only. They didn't practice it, but they claimed to be. And that's part of what sets this up as well, is that John the Baptist is going to say, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You claim to be a Jew, and yet you're not acting like it. Well, why are you not acting like it? Well, that's, that's where the political intrigue, and that's where the whole backstory comes in. So Herod the Great had... Uh, four different wives who had offspring that show up in scripture um, and they're recorded by other historians as well. One of his sons, Herod Philip, married one of the daughters of a different son, aka married his niece. Okay, we're, we're starting to run into some issues already. Did I mention that this is a wicked, messed up family? Just saying. Herod Philip married his niece, whose name was Herodias. Similar name, I'm sorry if I mispronounce it. 
they both had a daughter that ended up eventually marrying uh, Philip the Tetrarch, another of Herod the Great's sons, but a different Philip. Okay, so I, I thought about trying to, to display all of this, and it's, it's just all woven together. Did I mention that this is a messed up family? Did I mention that there's a lot of political intrigue going on? Herod Philip married his niece, who had a daughter that married her great uncle, who was the sibling of Herod Philip, her father. That wife, Herodus, decided to divorce Herod Philip to marry his brother, Herod Antipas. That's the Herod that we're talking about here. I, I see a couple of, of these kind of things going on, and you're right. It is all kinds of messed up. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to bring out. There, the, this was all kinds of messed up. One brother married a niece. She divorced him to marry a different brother. She had a daughter in that first one. Um, but let's not forget that the, the second marriage that she makes, that guy has to divorce his wife in order to marry her. So, you, you, I think you're tracking on all of this. Uh, it is all kinds of messed up. And that was not just their, their internal family relations, that was their entire political narrative. Everything that they're doing is all kinds of twisted and all kinds of issues. So, back to the text. Verse 17. Herod, that's Herod Antipas, himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodus, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. He, Antipas, had married Herodus, who had divorced Philip, and he had to divorce his wife in order to do so. Verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, this is where we get to that point that Herods were Jews. At least they claimed to be. Now there's, there's a lot going on there and there's all kinds of, of issues. But what does the Old Testament, obviously we know New Testament says divorce like that is, that is not okay. But Old Testament, what does the Old Testament have to say about this situation? About what's going on? Does anybody, anybody know off the top of your head? I know a couple of you have, have pre-studied. Good job. Okay, Leviticus 18.6 is... 16. Yep. It's Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20, verse 21. Both of them are Old Testament law that quite simply say this whole messed up relationship thing, not okay. God does not allow it. So what does John the Baptist do? What was John the Baptist always constantly doing? He was declaring the word of God. He was saying, hey, this is not right. This is not okay. On a side note, step back just for a moment. What are we supposed to be doing constantly? When we see the messed up political nonsense and, and relational issues and people marrying who they shouldn't be marrying according to God's word that it's not allowed and all of that stuff, we need to be just like John and say, hey, that's not okay. That's not right. That is not allowed. Particular, Herod claimed to be a Jew, claimed to be God's chosen people. When we see believers who are living the way that they aren't supposed to be, we need to be calling them out gently, lovingly, but letting them know, hey, 
This is not lawful. And that's exactly what John the Baptist had been doing. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John got put into prison for that. Was that right? No. Was that just? Was it reasonable? No, obviously not. And yet, that is what happened to John. Because he did what was right, uh, he gets thrown in prison. Now, we have some of that intrigue, that political stuff going on, happening then in verse 19. Herodus had a grudge against him. She did not like John the Baptist. Why do you think that she wouldn't like John the Baptist? Called her out. He was accusing her. They, she, she knew. She was guilty. And rather than do what was right, she said, oh, I'm just going to get rid of the messenger. Kill the messenger and then I don't have to hear about it. Well, <clears throat> she wanted John the Baptist dead. Um, and wanted to, desired to put him to death, and could not do so. She did not have the power, she did not have the authority to do it. That sets up this whole episode of what happens. Is, is She is furious with John the Baptist. Herod, Antipas, has arrested John the Baptist and put him in prison. Now, that's not just, that's not right, and yet, we see a little bit about his character right here. He's, he's waffling. He's going back and forth. He, he should have either let him go because that wasn't just or killed him because that's what his wife wanted. Except he knows that that's not right. He shouldn't do that. And yet he's not going to let her loose and so, or let him loose. And so he's just kind of caught in this issue of his own making. He got himself trapped because of his own decisions and his own indecisions. And as you, as you go through this, it should be reminding you of a different king, a, a previous king by the name of Ahab and Jezebel. Do you guys remember that story and that account? <clears throat> uh, very, very similar. The king had married someone that he should not have married. And rather than doing what was right, even when the prophet came and said, this is not right, you need to do this, he would listen to his wife that he shouldn't have had in the first place, uh, instead of to what God had said. Uh, that's back in uh, 1 Kings. Ahab and Jezebel. And it just so happens that that was Elijah was the prophet that was dealing with that. So very reminiscent of what had been happening. Well here, uh, Herod Antipas is kind of, he's waffling between these two. He, he puts John in prison, but it also says at the end of verse 20 that he keeps him safe. He preserved him in prison, so he, he wasn't letting his wife execute him, but he also wasn't giving him freedom. He wasn't following the law. He wasn't doing what was right, but he also wasn't letting her do what was wrong. And so it, it's, like I said, all kinds of messed up. And, but it says that he liked to listen to John. He, he was afraid of John, but he liked to listen to him. End um, of verse 20, when he heard him, when, when Antipas heard John, Antipas was very perplexed. He was at a loss. He didn't, didn't know what to do. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that John spoke openly. He let it be known. This is, this is what you need to do. Repent and believe. Follow God. Obey the law. Do what God expects. Antipas shouldn't have been perplexed. He shouldn't have been confused. And yet, he's, he's kind of in the strait of like, okay, what am I supposed to do? But, verse 20 again, but he used to enjoy listening to him. 
Antipas is a, an interesting character. He, he enjoys hearing John the Baptist talk, but he doesn't know what to do with it because John the Baptist is telling him that Antipas is in the wrong and not obeying God and not doing what is right. And so he hears the truth, but instead of obeying it, he just kind of enjoys the conversations and then walks away completely unchanged, unwilling to submit to God, unwilling to do what God expected of him. I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention again, this idea of when we are convicted, when we are told that, hey, something's not right, how do you respond to that? Do you say, you know what, I need to deal with that and I need to address it? Or do you just kind of keep going on with your day and say, well, you know, it's, it's all good, I'm going to do what I'm going to do? Well, that's what Herod did. He left John in prison because that was convenient, that was easy. But he wouldn't let John the Baptist be executed either. So he's kind of in this weird situation. Then we get to verse 21. A strategic day. An opportune moment. The, the right time comes up. Now, how is this strategic? How is this opportune? It's not going to be opportune. Do what? It's not going to be opportune for Herod Antipas. It's not going to be opportune for John the Baptist. But it's opportune it's a good opportunity for Herodus, for the wife. A strategic or opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. Now, one thing that you need to know culturally, when the king celebrated their birthday, this was a huge um, affair of state. This wasn't just like when we have a birthday, you know, maybe we'll have a party, maybe we'll have a little cake or whatever. No, this is a big deal. But, Culturally, it was also for the Jews recognized as a pagan holiday. And so the Jews had certain rules and laws about, well, you're not allowed to celebrate these things because ultimately it is designed as worship of this individual, of this person, instead of worshiping God. So there's, that gives you some context of what's happening here. A big deal, big event. It's a, a major a state affair. And it's also something that the Jews were supposed to stay away from by their traditions. Not, not based on what the Old Testament law said, but by their traditions, they were supposed to stay away from it because it was celebrating things that, that weren't good. And that really gives us the setting of what's about to be happening. He gave a banquet. Who, who was at the banquet? There's three categories of people. Okay, the lords, the military commanders, and the leading men. The, this idea of lords is the nobles or the chiefs. These are the, the ruling elite. They were there. The military commanders. Um, it, it uses a term that means ruler over a thousand. So it's, these aren't just like your, your low-level lieutenants or, or captains. This is like your generals, your colonels, your high-level military officials. And the leading men of Galilee. Now let's go back to what I had just mentioned the Jews, by their tradition, were not supposed to be a part of this. And yet, it's being thrown by a Jewish, a, a Jewish king who's working his own political intrigue throughout all of this. And he brings in the leading men of Galilee. Galilee was a Jewish area. There's a lot going on here that kind of says this isn't a great environment. This isn't the kind of birthday party that you ought to be going to. We'll put it that way. These guys are there. And when the daughter of Herodus 
herself came in and danced. That's verse 22. She pleased Herod. Now, the word there for danced is just danced. It doesn't tell us what kind. Based on what I've said about this type of a birthday and about what's going on, did I mention that it's a a heavy eating, heavy drinking, lots of gluttony and that kind of a thing going on? We can infer what kind of dance this was. Mark is very, very gentle. He doesn't express it. Historically, it has been assumed to be an adult kind of an event and not something else. The, the, there are some who would say, well, you know, this was, this was a fairly innocent dance and, and it's a young girl and she just, she just um, is very impressive. It'd be like, you know, a, a virtuoso on the violin and everyone was so impressed. I don't think so. Technically possible, but I don't think so. I'm going to leave it there. When the daughter herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This was approved by This was encouraged by. Um, And so the king has a a reaction to this. He sees that his guests are excited by this and that that everybody enjoyed it and and things are going great. So he, because of his internal uh, self-focus, wants to draw the attention back to himself. He stands up and says, uh, said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty good promise. You know, hey, you, you have made my guests happy. You have made my birthday a, a great success. I will give you a present. What would you like? But he doesn't just stop there. He swore to her. He gave an oath to her. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Now, there's a couple of things going on here that we need to notice. First of all, this is a very flamboyant uh, promise. Half the kingdom. He's, he's in essence, and this is a little bit of a figure of speech, but he's in essence saying, hey, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I can make all your dreams come true. He's saying, look at me, I'm so cool. I'm going to give you a present. He's, he stands up immediately and swears to her because he's probably a little bit tipsy. Just being honest, he's most likely in a drunken stupor doing some dumb things. Um, and so this, this whole event is not... Good. The whole shebang is just continuation of exactly what the Herods were constantly doing. Disobeying God, not following him, not doing what was right. He makes this this flamboyant, spur-of-the-moment promise. And what does she do? Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Now, we saw earlier that this is an opportune moment, and... She, Herodias, being the conniving, you know, manipulative, involved in all of this, just like Jezebel, like I mentioned from the Old Testament, she notices, hey, this is the great opportunity. This is my chance. Now, the daughter, we're not told how old she is. We We don't know what's going on. We don't know if she was also into the political intrigue yet or not. If she ran out because, oh, hey, this is my chance. Hey, mom, how are we going to make this work? Or if, you know, she was fairly innocent and didn't know all of the, the intrigue. We're not told. She's, she's an actor in this, but we're not given a lot of information about what's going on in her mind. But she goes out and asks her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother responds, the head of John the Baptist. She's been waiting for this opportunity. She's been looking forward to this moment when she can get rid of that guy that is trying to make me look bad. It's all about the politics. It's all about the intrigue. It's all about making herself feel better, not about what is true. 
or what is right. The mother said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And then if you, if you look through verse 25, you're going to find that there's a lot of very quick movement that happens. Immediately she comes back. Um, she came in a hurry. At once I want this. So there's, Mark is letting us know that this is, this is an instantaneous, we're going to move fast, strike while the iron's hot kind of an idea. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And what is his response? How does Herod deal with that? He was very sorry. He's, he's confronted with something that he knows is wrong, and he doesn't want to do it, and he's, he's sorry. So obviously, being a good godly king, he's not going to do this, Right? If only. <clears throat> Although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, well, what does that mean? He's more focused on, I want to look good. I just made a big flamboyant promise, and uh, how can I get, get out of this? That's part of why it's, it's significant in verse 25 that it's immediately, in a hurry, right now, at once. He has no way out. He painted himself into a corner. Now, if he had any integrity... If he had any uh, moral standing at all, he could have said, you know what, I did something stupid. I need to fix this. I'm not going to give you the, king, or the head of John the Baptist because that is wrong. But is that what he does? Does he stand up and say, you know, I'm going to do the right thing even though it's going to cost me politically, even though I'm going to look bad, even though... No. Immediately, all right, so he was un unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. Now this is an interesting word. The, the word executioner there actually uh, historically wasn't used for much of anything until this. This is the first recorded use of it. It became known as a guard or a spy, um, but it's, it's interesting that Mark says, you know, uses that word and says he sends this individual. It, it must have been a person close to the king who was part of his intrigue, part of his manipulating the politics, and, and part of his um, personal guard is, is the idea that's being conveyed there. That it's, it's one of his henchmen. It's one of his entourage. It's one of his close people. So it's not the normal executioner. That's, that's my point. It's not that he went through the normal legal process and had him executed for crimes and things that John the Baptist had done. Instead, he sends one of his lackeys who goes into the prison and uh, cuts off John's head and brings it back. It says, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his, being John the Baptist's, head. And the executioner went and had John the Baptist beheaded in prison and brought John's head on a platter. This lackey, this, this enforcer, this guard, this person did what the king commanded. Just following orders, just doing what, what I was told. And yet this whole episode has been set up as injustice, as wrong, as not following the law, as not doing what, what was expected. The rulers, the kings, the ones in authority, they were supposed to obey God's law. John the Baptist, all he had done was say, hey, here's the law, you're supposed to be following this. And now he's been executed because of that. Because he stood firm on his principles. Because he stood, stood firm on the word of God. 
And he just gave his life because the politics, the politicians of his day, did not want to do what was right, but instead said, you know what, I'm going to do what's expedient, what makes me look good, what fits into my plans. The executioner went, had John beheaded in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now, this is the, the place in this, uses that term, gave it to the girl. Up until this point, she's been called um, the daughter of Herodotus, or she. Here, it emphasizes that she is a young lady. Doesn't really tell us her age, other than she's not an, a, a full-blown adult. She's a teenager, maybe, perhaps early 20s, but doubtful. Maybe even as young as, well, the last time that this word was used by Mark was referring to a 12-year-old girl. So it's an innocent to some extent, and yet she's been involved in all of this. Again, we don't know exactly where she fits in. Mark doesn't record a whole lot about her, but the use of this word kind of makes me wonder, does she even really know what all's going on, or is she just being used in all of this? She gets handed this platter with John the Baptist's head on it. That sounds pretty gross. And she takes it to her mother. She may have, may have been innocent, and yet she was the one who, was, who conveyed this terrible, terrible thing. She's complicit in this. The executioner is complicit in this. The whole of that area, uh, all of the, the ones who are at the banquet, all of this sets up this terrible, horrible situation. And John the Baptist dies because of it. Now, we'll finish it out, and then we'll discuss some of the connections that we see. When his disciples heard about it, when John the Baptist's disciples heard about it, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. They're the only ones who had respect. It's really what it comes down to. They respected John. They recognized, hey, we need, to, we need to bury him. Whether they got the head back or not, it doesn't say, but they at least took the body and, and buried it in a tomb. There was no reason for this. There's no justice in this. Here in a few chapters, we're going to start seeing Jesus himself. Get ready to head into Jerusalem. The whole of the, the Gospel of Mark has been in the northern part, in Galilee. But eventually he's going to set his face and say, I have to go down to Jerusalem. And he's going to go there. And he's going to be surrounded by people that ought to know what the law is. And he's going to tell them, this is what God expects. This is what God wants. And the results are going to be exactly the same as what we see happening with John the Baptist. This whole thing is a foreshadowing of that. There's no justice in Jesus' trial. No justice in his execution. There's no reason for it. And yet, both of these men, John the Baptist and Jesus, willingly submitted to this terrible abuse of justice at the, pow- at the, at the hands of these, these powerful individuals who were so focused on doing what they wanted to do instead of what God had commanded for them to be doing. So what? I, I, I can't go through a passage of Scripture and not ask us to consider, what should we do with that? What, 
what difference should this make? Do we, do we just read this and say, oh, hey, that's a, that's a cool flashback, that's some interesting information, or well, why in the world would that be inserted here when everything else is going on and look at it very academically? We could do that. In fact, I encourage you to, to go through and ask those questions and study these things and try and figure that type of stuff out. So what? One of the big things that stands out in my mind is as you look through history, you see that the governments often will do things similar to this. And I know there are, there are some conversations that I've had about politics and governments and things of that nature in, in our modern day. And, you know, I, I read this and my mind instantly goes to, let's, let's whine and moan and groan and complain on that. And then I pause and think to myself, you know what? That's not the kind of so what that we need. We need the so what of how can we be like John? who stood firm on his convictions, who said, you know what? No matter what's going to happen to me, even thrown in prison, even being executed unjustly, I'm going to declare, thus saith the word of God. I'm going to stand for him no matter what. When, when the whole world is waffling and doesn't know what they're doing and can't figure out what truth is, I will say, this is what God expects. So what? Are you willing to be like John the Baptist? Are you willing to give your life for what you believe in? This, like I said, the, the account itself is going to foreshadow what Christ is about to endure. The challenge that I give to you right now, and really to myself, are we willing to stand firm on what is true, no matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an account. What a testimony of John the Baptist. As we, as we dig in and as we understand more about the intrigue and the politics and everything that was going on and just how messed up a situation it was, Lord, I'm amazed that John was willing and able to stand firm for you. And Lord, we look around and we see similarities even to today. May we be your people who live for you, who declare the truth, and who are willing to stand firm no matter what. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the time that we've had to dig into it, to study it. May we love it and desire to know it more and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Shall we stand? We will just sing through the first first slide basically. Jesus Jesus Holy and 
and anointed one, Jesus. Amen. And there will be men's discipleship tonight. And we're dismissed to start setting up tables and chairs. Please get your items off the chairs so we can set up for the meal.